somewhere in Lower California. Jennifer's here. Ryan's here. Vodka's here, too. We had a little earthquake here today. Did you feel the earthquake, Ryan? No, you didn't. Jennifer felt You were driving. Jennifer felt it. You felt it, too. It was rolling. It was a rolling one. There's a bunch of different kinds of earthquakes. Um, there's this kind that are that, that knock, knock you out of bed and you're scared to death. There's the kind that make the windows rattle and, and bow in and out. And um, glass takes on this insane property where it's like liquid and it, it kind of goes. Um, it doesn't actually make that noise, but it's funnier if it does. I remember one when I was a kid in San Carlos laying in bed. I'm looking up at the window just at the moment when the earthquake hit. And the window undulating, is it? Is that the word? Uh, and, and going... This is very strange, like having an out-of-body experience, just watching glass undulate and then going outside. And my dad was like, oh, my. And I live in an apartment building and everyone was outside. That's the thing about a big earthquake makes everyone come outside and usually drink, which is hilarious. The next thing that happens is people are opening bottles of wine. People are like, hey, let's have a cigarette. You know, like it's just it's the most social event. It's uh, it's really wild how that happens. P- Los Angeles is a place where people are wildly indifferent to human life. Like every, I've described it before to you, but you, you have to understand that everything here is a, a microaggressive win. Um, everything is, a, you've got to win every situation. You've got to be the first in line. You've got to be the first one to the stoplight. You've got to pass someone on the right if they're waiting for people to cross the crosswalk. You've got to, there's all these weird things that people do here. So they're heartless on the road and they're rude in public. And then of course you get with LA people and they're generally reasonably nice and even surprisingly out of their cars. once they're out of the car they're and you you meet people here who are fascinating that know their topic that are wildly accomplished there's probably more great writers and screenwriters musicians um uh, physicists doctors actors lawyers this town is brimming with fucking you know accomplished people podcasters i'm wearing <laughs> Where did we find that podcast vest? Was it a? It was a podcast outfit that you were in. It was online, and it was the saddest thing in the world. It was a tank, right? That's right. It was a. It was a kind of a. If you'll pardon the expression, a wife beater. Uh, and um, yeah, because only because I have a joke where I go, it's like wearing a wife beater. You might not do it, but it's on your mind. Uh, it was a tank top, and it said like podcast crew or whatever. And of course, we're all wearing uniforms here. Let me just describe what everyone's wearing. Ryan's wearing a little blue uh, stripy pinafore that's just darling and, and flats. And it says um, Pripcast on it. Uh, Jennifer's wearing um, orange zip-up coveralls. And she's got a, a pack of sawed-off cools rolled up in the sleeve. And uh, I'm, I'm just wearing a simple black sheath. Because uh, I don't like to be ostentatious. And not too much jewelry. You know, like Audrey Hepburn. You want to keep that minimal because you want people to like you. And not go, oh my God, Greg's wearing so much jewelry. Now, lip sync for your very lives. So, the earthquake happened today. And, um, I mean, Jennifer and I were in the big one in 89. We weren't, we didn't live here in 94 in Los Angeles area. We lived in London then. And I remember phoning all of our LA friends on the night uh, because uh, we turned on the news in London and all you saw was smokes and um, the Northridge quake has destroyed a part of LA that no one's heard of up till now called Northridge. (laughs) And I'm not trying to minimize how awful it was. I'm sure it was terrible. Scott Capuro tells a story about working for Dick Clark. Was it that day or was it the riot? Because Dick Clark was uh, 
It was many things. I, I, I had occasion to work with Dick Clark a couple of times. Yes, Dick Clark, that one, the one of American Bandstand, the one who invented New Year's Eve, evidently, until he handed it over to Ryan Seacrest. Before him, Guy Lombardo, if you go back to the beginning of time. Uh, but Dick Clark invented New Year's Eve. I can remember three things about Dick Clark. One, that after he had a terrible stroke, Joan Rivers made fun of him on TV, which was just fucking ghastly and hilarious, right? She's like, well, Dick Clark's going to do New Year's and be like, Happy New Year. And you're like, really? Really, Joan? Um, And then uh, uh, I was eating lunch with him. I was sitting on the set of a show they did. I can't remember the name of it. It was four or five guys. It was supposed to be the male view. It was his idea. Like, he was a genius syndicator, right? Uh, America's Funniest Pranks Where People Get Hit in the Balls. That was his idea. The one he did with Ed McMahon. where they and, and Dick Clark didn't do any retakes. I've heard this from many crew people in L.A. Like, they'd shoot that show and they go, and you know, Dick Clark's delivery was always like this. He'd go, here's an amusing piece from Kansas City where a dog gets the best of the situation in him. And they go, Dick, you kind of fouled that last part. And he go, moving on. <laughs> so we're standing backstage at this mail show. And it was me, Danny Bonaducci, Mario Lopez. Dick, yeah, this is some star-studded shit. This show's starting big. <laughs> I'm coming out guns blazing in this fucking show. This is like Al Pacino in The Devil's Advocate. It is on. And uh, I can't remember the other fellow's name. You'll have to forgive me. He was black. They, they See what they did? They had a, a black guy, a Latin guy, a ginger guy, a me, and Dick. And uh, we're standing backstage. And I go, Dick, when did you start in show business? And he goes, 1947. And I go, in Philly? And he's like, yeah. Because Bandstand started in the early 50s. And he escaped the payola scandal that consumed Al, uh, Alan Freed and a lot of other famous DJs and producers at the time. But surely he was taking the payola. I don't know how he got out of it, but he did. And they were not an integrated show. Eventually, Bandstand was forced to let black people come and dance on the show, but they made them dance with each other so that there was no, heaven forbid, a black girl dance with a white guy because the world would come to an end, as you know. Never mind that, like, America had things like, oh, I don't know, the Korean War and the, and the witch hunt and, you know, genocide against people and stuff like that. That didn't matter as much. If you saw a couple, mixed race couple dancing, that could destroy your children's lives. Because then they would think, oh, I can be nice to people that aren't the same race as me. Even though we were all listening to black people music. Well, that's why you'd watch Soul Train. Well, Soul, Don Cornelius Genius, other than he hated rap music and was kind of a miserable guy, uh, was that he put on a black bandstand. And it was hipper. It had better dancers. It had better hair. It had better music, let's be honest. The original, original bandstand, he had every black artist on. There's no question of that. I was in his office in Burbank, and his office was a rock and roll museum, and it was awesome. Chuck Berry's guitar, Beatles posters autographed. I'm not kidding. Like, Dick Clark's office was great. If you could have stolen, like, all I could think of while I was there taking the meeting, all I could think of was, what can I take that's just sitting, right? Like, there's Jerry Lee Lewis ashtray. You know what I mean? Like, it, it really was that. It was like, I'm not kidding. Like, Fats Domino's hat. It was really, he had all this stuff. So we're sitting backstage. And by the way, for lunch on the set of the show, this was a show, like a syndicated show. And I did a week's worth of them <clears throat> for lunch. Um, uh, uh, Panda Express, which is 
a Chinese fast food chain that's located here in LA and the food's kind of crappy like it's almost you know how when you go to New York and uh, you go to the supermarket in New York on the corner the bodega or whatever and it's got uh, the Chinese food that's always in the center in those heated trays and you know you'll go like I need a, a, a Fiji water and a pack of chiclets or whatever it is you're getting for me it's usually batteries and you know in any case um, the and you always wonder and <clears throat> Jennifer I often comment and everyone who's ever been to New York always comments who eats the food who eats the Chinese food from the center thing that's in the middle that there's no covering on and there's literally no knowing when it was put out? I mean, some places, yeah, they're, you know, like famous delis and stuff. You, you can't eat it. Uh, here in L.A., every supermarket has them. Uh, even Gelson's has orange chicken, for goodness sakes. But this was like sub that. It was almost like TV dinner level of uh, uh, Chinese food. That's what we ate at lunch. And what I remember most of all was no one said a word. It was like eating with Napoleon. You know what I mean? Like, you can't go, Mon Emperor, the chicken is still alive. You know, like, <laughs> my, mine is still moving on my plate. And by the way, no plates. Those plastic cartons that what it comes in, you know, that have the black bottoms and the, and the see-through tops, the opa- uh, uh, cellophane um, uh, uh, clear tops. And then you put it on paper plates. We all went over to the thing and got paper plates and they ate it with, like, little plastic forks. Dick Clark had more money than Jesus, right? Like no human in show business other than Bob Zaget ever made as much money as Dick Clark. Like he owned Bandstand, he owned America's Funniest Things That Happened with Ed McMurray or whatever his fucking name was. He owned all these fucking shows and he owned other things too. Like if you saw, it was a very white, oblique, uh, not oblique, it was a very white, um, uh, well-defined DC was his logo and it would say Dick Clark Productions. He produced the Golden Globes for a thousand years. I'm not kidding. Like, he was big. Like, Merv Griffin big. Merv Griffin owned uh, and uh, still owns Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. So there's like, from the grave, Merv Griffin's going, ooh, let's cash that check. I knew Merv Griffin too. God, Greg, you're so old. Who else did you know? Robert Goddard, who invented the rocket. Uh, Galileo, we used to do experiments at the Leaning Tower of Pisa. We would drop two objects. The most interesting one I thought for Galileo was we, we had two separate cannonballs, but one only weighed five pounds and one weighed like 10 pounds. And he was like, I bet because of gravity that they'll land at the same time. And I said, no, the 10 pound one lands sooner. And I was wrong. And I had to pay Galileo, a, you know, a, lo- a lot of livres or whatever money was in Italy in the Middle Ages. So. I'm backstage at Dick Clark, and I says to him, how long have you been in show business? He goes, 40, 1947. This was probably 2004 or 2005 when we did the show. Whenever The View had first come on. And I, 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 he goes, Greg, let me tell you something. I'm like, what is it, Dick? He goes, I'm the only non-Jew in show business. And I fucking <laughs> fell over. I was like, this is awesome. God, it's awesome. It was just great. So it was a Christmas uh, episode, and it was right before New Year's. It was an episode that was going to air in that crap week before between Christmas and New Year's. And um, everybody says what they're doing. Mario Lopez goes, I'm going to go visit my family. And Danny Bonaduce goes, Mario, I don't do anything, whatever. Like, Danny was awesome. Danny was really, truly awesome. I, am I out of school and telling a Danny Bonaduce story? Mario Lopez. Dorian Gregory. Dorian Gregory. Thank you very much, Jennifer. For, for Now that I can give Mr. Gregory some dignity. He was quite nice, and we did work together for a week. Am I out of school telling you Danny Bonaduce story? I think Danny's troubles have been well chronicled, and I love him. He's a nice person. He really is. And ripped. Like, he, no one's 
like he's someone who quit doing drugs and just started lifting weights, right? And he he's really funny and really nice. And of course, when he's a little maybe a year older than me, a two years older. When I was little, I thought he on the Partridge Family was the whole show. Like him and Reuben Kincaid, who passed as a swirly in the heavens two years ago. Um, Mr. Madden, uh, Dave Madden, was it? Uh, Dave Madden used to do a shtick on laughing as a comedian. I'm not done with the Dick Clark story. Dave Madden did a shtick on laughing. He had a droopy, droopy face, right? Like his, his comedy was droopy, right? Like Dave Madden delivered lines like this. Kids, the bus is here. Surely you got to get the kids in the bus. On laughing, he'd tell a joke and then he'd throw confetti in the air. Like nothing was going on. It was so funny. So he played Reuben Kincaid, the manager in the Partridge family, and Danny was Danny. Danny played Danny, and uh, except he was Danny Partridge on the show. And he was so little that his bass guitar was gigantic. It was unwieldy. Like he, and Keith, who fantastically, David Cassidy, was really kind to him and treated him. And so was uh, Reuben Kincaid. They were all very kind to Danny. Danny's family was uh, tumultuous. Danny told me on Christmas morning, there was no such thing as coming downstairs and having cocoa and opening the presents. He said, what happened was there was a stampede into the living room and then a pile on under the tree where everybody just ripped things open. And that was Christmas morning. And this is the least of his things that happened to him. His parents were really mean to him physically. And so uh, show business was a mixed bag. And by this point, like now we're all older. He was really glad to get on the show. He'd been DJing here in L.A. He's been a radio personality and a TV personality in Hollywood for years. And he has that fantastic voice. He talks like he's a like he's a gangster from the 40s or something. He's really got this voice. Greg, when I auditioned for the show, I was so fucking scared. I went to a bar and I had seven vodkas. And I'm like, seven vodkas? How did you stand through the audition? He's like, I don't fucking know, but I fucking got it. <laughs> so we get on the set. And Danny's going to visit his thing. He's, Danny had a, was married then, and, and Mario's going to the thing. Mr. Gregory was going wherever he was going. And I, I go, I'm playing the punchline, in San, or maybe Cobbs in those days. It was that long ago. I'm playing San Francisco, which I played San Francisco New Year's for literally since, oh, God, 1985. Jennifer was a child. She doesn't remember. But uh, I said, I turned to Dick Clark on TV and went, hey, Dick, what are you doing this New Year's? And everyone laughed, right? The fucking audience bursts out. Danny falls over. Dorian falls over. Mario even got the joke. That's how funny the joke was. Mario got it. Dick just looked at me. Like, I, I invented New Year's. And I went, right? And he... There's a... I've talked about it before, but I've been talking about it ever so briefly. There's a Jefferson Airplane video from 1967. And uh, Grace looks wearing a snood. If you don't know what a snood is, it's like what a salamander would cover itself in if it was going to do witchcraft. And everyone in the band's got shades on. Uh, Jack Cassidy's got like a fringe leather jacket. Katner's got like stripy trousers. He's sitting on the piano at one point. The drummer's wearing an, a, a cravat or an ascot or a scarf and shades. Uh, Yorma Kakonan on guitar is wearing like a t-shirt and shades. Like they're the coolest band, right? They're so drugged up. Not on bandstand, but uh, in general. And they look really cool and hippie and scary. And because it's a hippie band from San Francisco, they flip their image over and make them play upside down for a while. And then they show a Victorian house because the Jefferson Airplane famously lived in this weird 
big black Victorian house, which was white that they painted black, which was on the corner of Ashbury and Fulton, and Fulton which everybody knew in San Francisco. And every time we drove by it, all of us have been to parties there. They really did all live there at one point, And it was like... The Jefferson Airplane, like, carried firearms and took heroin. They were, like, such a Bay Area band, like Tower of Power, The Grateful Dead. Like, Bay Area bands have this hippie, have this hippie uh, uh, image. But it wasn't, like, incense and peppermint. It was more like firearms and fucking, you know, uh, someone's going to die in the bathtub before the, g- the gig's over. That was in Marin, wasn't it? Or was that in the city? Later, later in her career, Grace... Um, pulled firearms on the police and forced them to exit the premises. <clears throat> she was apprehended and taken to jail, as was awesomely David Crosby, if you remember. He had firearms as well. David Crosby. This is Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I hear all, what, what, what's her, our house is a very, very, very fine. By the way, I've got a gun. Um, uh, my friends Jay and Forrest went to see Crosby, Stills, and Nash at the Oakland Coliseum in 1976, 77. And they did the first set. And it was them. Neil Young wasn't there. He wasn't playing with them then. It was them. And they could still sing, you know. And he said at the end of the first set, David says to the audience, you guys, thank you. We got to go backstage and fucking sober up for a while. <laughs> I'm not kidding. This was, we got to sober up. There's 5,000 people there. Or eight, how many did the Coliseum hold? Is that where you saw Keith Richards? Or like 8,000. So. Well, like the jail. Yeah. Marina, so, so Dick Clark is interviewing the Grateful, I mean, uh, the uh, Jefferson Airplane. And he goes, well, there might be more successful groups in the country, but I don't know who. They've had hit after hit. They're going to do two songs for us now. Ladies and gentlemen, with White Rabbit, please welcome the Jefferson Airplane and they get a boom, 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 boom and all of a sudden it's a freak out and you know and that fucking now the image is upside down and she's dressed like a priestess a high priestess and she's staring at the camera and shit then he's like they're gonna do one more number now and it's called Somebody to Love and they fucking come out and wham through that right and then he interviews them and, and uh, says uh, what's it gonna be like this summer in San Francisco and they're like, I don't know, man. It's going to be crazy, right? Like, this is, the, this is 1967. I love him for that. Uh, so Merv Griffin was a lovely man. And uh, he had a dog, a tiny dog that he carried with him everywhere. And I went in to do a rock and roll Jeopardy, if you remember. Another person named Proops got the gig, Jeff Probst. Proopst and Probst are derivations of the same name. So I went in and I auditioned. And uh, uh, I had to host and you had to read the cards and people had to answer in questions. And we did a mock show of it. And then they asked me to say something to the camera. So I said, well, I've really enjoyed doing this, but you're forming a joint blockade between me and the joint. I've gotten the ashtray in my Volvo. And I knew then that I had fucked my chances for being the host of Rock and Roll Jeopardy. And Jeff Probst got it. Later, of course, I was on with Graham Nash. Jennifer came with me. And it was me, Graham Nash and Kari Verr, was it? Remember, if you remember Kari Verr from the MTV days. And uh, the show before us was Niall Rogers and two guys from the Bare Naked Ladies. And the Bare Naked Ladies, next to Mark, uh, who's from Sugar Ray, what's that guy's name? Mark McGrath, the two Bare Naked Ladies, I'm not kidding, are savants. Like, on Rock and Roll Jeopardy, there was no question they didn't answer. 
Niall came off stage. We were desperate to meet Niall Rogers. Fortunately, later we met Niall Rogers in another situation where it was a little more conducive. We're like Niall Roger, like you know me and Funk, right? Like he's the he was the founder of Chic with um Bernard, and they were just you know I just love Chic and and I, I love disco and I love Niall Rogers and I oh my God. He lost so brutally to the bare naked ladies. They came backstage buoyant, and I said hi, Niall, and he was like, "Fuck this shit!" Right? Like he was fucking angry because he literally it was like one bare naked lady guy had like three thousand, the other one had twenty five hundred, and Niall had like four hundred. Right? It was bad. So he wasn't speaking to anyone. So now our show, and it's uh, Graham Nash from Crosby, Stills and Nash, who's gorgeous, and he had um, just been in a terrible. Terrible accident, yeah. And I said, just because I've got a couple of your records, you think you're something to him. And he goes, a couple? And Then he goes, um, I saw Bill Haley in the comments at the Sheffield Town Hall when I was 15 and it changed my life. And I go, no way. And he goes, swear to God, man. Jennifer will attest to this because she was there. Graham Nash reached in his wallet and pulled out a laminated ticket that said, Bill Haley in the comments, 1959. Sheffield Town Hall. He had laminated it. So not, cute. not. It wasn't in a plastic envelope. It wasn't in a thing. He had. I don't know if anyone knows what laminating is anymore. It's like bronzing baby shoes. You took a piece of paper, right, and you put a piece of plastic over it that sealed it so that it was forever safety sealed in this thing. And he fucking took it out of his wallet and went like this. And we were like, Oh my god! It was like the time Bob Dylan said uh, on the Grammys. Um, when I was a kid, I saw Buddy Holly at the Duluth Town Hall in 1959. And man, he looked at me. <laughs> and that was the moment, like, you're like, oh my God, right? History is a continuum. Bill Haley in the comments, Graham Nash. So I beat Graham Nash on Rock and Roll Jeopardy, which I'm ashamed to say now. I, I'm a very competitive person. I shouldn't have done it. I could have let him win. Here's the question. I didn't beat him on this question. I fucked this question up. Which Ozzy Osbourne album is named after a story by Gogol? Eh, time's up. Diary of a Madman. Yeah. I said, Howl at the Moon, because I'm an idiot. At least I didn't say, you know, Ozfest or whatever. So, Merv Griffin, we're doing this pilot for him, and it's a game show. And it was kind of intricate and I was hosting it and you had to answer questions and there was a thing and there was a certain amount of uh, uh, volition that the, the contestants had. And, you know, all games are, you know, predicated on how fun they are and how pacey they are, how involved you can get the audience. Obviously, Wheel of Fortune is, ha is Hangman and Jeopardy is a reverse question and answer game. All the games that have lasted forever and ever that were popular, you know, Password, whatever, blah have to have a hook or even midnight with Chris. Chris's was a variation of every fifties game show, but with the host awarding the points immediately and like that. So we're, we, we, we rehearsed it a bunch of times. And then on the day, there's all these syndicators in and, uh, we start to do the show and we get about two questions into it. And Merv, gets up with his dog in his hand and goes, all right, you see how it goes. And I was like, what? We have been doing this for two minutes. I thought we were supposed to do like a 10 minute presentation. You know, you get to see kind of a couple rounds, you know, into the next round because there's always a couple rounds that lead to a round of D, 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 D. 
I was in College Bowl when I was in college. College Bowl was this really weird game show where they didn't, it was Jeopardy style, but they didn't ask, you didn't have to answer in the form of question. College Bowl, the difference was in Jeopardy and on Ben Stein's Money and on Rock and Roll Jeopardy and all those shows, there's a light that comes on the moment you're allowed to buzz. If you buzz before the light comes on, you are locked out for the duration of that question and everyone else gets to answer it. Well, in College Bowl, there was a lockout system as well, but you were allowed to answer during the question, right? So I wasn't the best guy on my team. This was college and I was just a kid. Um, we had a guy on our team named Ken Kunkel and Ken Kunkel's had a dual major of classics, which is Greek and Roman literature in, the, in Latin and Greek and mathematics. But because he was a genius, he also had read everything ever. So he was a literature uh, expert as well. So he covered the sum total as David... Uh, um, Steinberg once said, the sum total knowledge of humanity was contained inside his brain. What were you there for, Greg? Comic relief, obviously, uh, to smoke dope, uh, to keep the team's spirits buoyed, and uh, sports and movies, because none of them, because they were such hardcore academic geeks, knew anything about movies or sports, and I knew everything, even at 19. So anytime we'd get a Stan Musial question that everybody would look over down my way and I'd go, 1963. And uh, 1947. So uh, we're playing college ball and it was owned by these two people named Reed. Um, and the old man was still alive and the, the son had taken over. It was a radio show and I'm not fucking kidding you. I know that, again, Greg, now the camera turns to the world of entertainment. Greg Proust would like to talk about being in the talkies. You know, Al Jolson was the one who, ladies and gentlemen, you ain't seen nothing yet. This was 1979 when I got on the show. And um, it was, I mean, I can get on the show. I, we, we had a tournament at San Francisco State and I got on the team because I was plucky. And Tom Daly, our coach, had uh, served in Vietnam as an adjutant to a general because he spoke fluent Vietnamese. And Tom Daly was a genius, right? This was the coach of our team. And I said to him one time, Tom, how come you know everything? And he said, and this is so disappointing because I'm quite older than he is now when he said this to me. Greg, when you get to my age, it's not hard to know a lot. <laughs> I think that's optimistic. I thought it was beautiful. I love Tom Daly. And of course, we'd get high and we'd all cry laughing, you know. And, but with these guys were geniuses, so you couldn't dent their, you know, their recall their memory or their uh, 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 their total of their knowledge. Um, I remember Kunkel getting an Erasmus question and nailing it. Um, uh, James Joyce, the Dubliners question and murdering it. So my greatest moment was that uh, we were playing a tournament in uh, um, West Virginia at Marshall University. Yes, we are Marshall, that exact team. There was a picture of the team that had died on the wall of the student union where we shot pool and had, I'm not kidding, pastrami sandwiches. And uh, so we played the tournament that night and we're all, uh, we played Notre Dame or Vassar, but Vassar had a co-ed team, right? And um, they go, um, this body of water is located between the Dardanelles and I buzzed. <laughs> Proop, San Francisco. And I went, what is the Sea of Mamara? <laughs> the sea, I don't have, you know, say what? The Sea of Mamara. And they're like, Correct. And you're like, Greg, why do you know this and who cares? I had a teacher named Mr. Cavani in eighth grade and he had maps all over the wall of the classroom. And we did a thing called the circle where everyone in the class sat in a circle. And I'm not kidding. And he asked questions and you moved up every time you got a right answer and you moved down every time you got a wrong answer. Is this weird or what? 
this is true. I've never told you this before, either of you. You're both looking at me. If you can see the expressions in the room right now, ladies and gentlemen. Bart Kevney, I don't know if he's alive, but he was a lovely man. And he wrote in my yearbook uh, in 1972 or whatever, remember who taught you about the Greeks and Romans? Because he was the first one. To, yeah, right. All, all of a sudden it was, yeah, it was uh, Demosthenes and Aristotle, DDD. So these on the walls around the room, he had blank maps. He also had maps that had everything filled in. All the rivers and cities of Europe and Asia, all the, uh, you know, so I know the capital of Romania, not because I, I'm so smart. It was beaten into me at the age of 12, right? So we would answer questions. And uh, between the Dardanelles and the Hellespont, this is in Turkey, right? Where Istanbul is, and Jennifer, I've been there, the Golden Horn and all that. That body of water that goes forward toward Asia is the Sea of Mamara. That's the only reason I know it, because of Bart Kevney's fucking eighth grade geography class. So when we got to the question, all games are about recall. All games are not about knowledge. Everybody knows everything. They really do. And especially when you get to the Ken Jennings level on Jeopardy and shit. Everybody really does know everything. Except for they didn't know that Smokey Robinson question a couple years ago, which I almost started bawling in the living room. The, the Miracles recorded this song, Tears of a Clown. Which group was it? And everybody went, um, is it Chuck Berry? And you're like, fuck you. It's Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Have you no culture whatsoever? How white do you have to be to not know that Smokey Robinson... And- so I got the Sea of Mamara one. The other teams did not dig it. They were not digging it. A couple questions later, they go. In 1956, John Larson pitched the only perfect game, and I went, eh. They hadn't asked the question yet. You were supposed to, in College Bowl, wait for the interrogative, right? So who, what, when, where, why is what you were, how were you waiting for in the question? All the questions were constructed that way. So I would go, this novel was the best-selling novel of 1818. What novel is it? And then usually people waited, you know, although that was a shitty example, but something that had more information in it. So, for instance, the question was, uh, uh, Don Larson, in 1956, Don Larson pitched the only World Series game, only perfect game in World Series history. So the question is, what team did he beat? Which would have been the next four words of the question. In my mind, I was racing forward. I thought he could ask two questions. One, who is the catcher? I discarded that immediately as too arcane and abstruse. And I said, so the proof, San Francisco, Brooklyn Dodgers. And the fucking other team's heads went like this. Bang! And all hit the table, right? <laughs> we won that one. Uh, so, But you could answer early. And you can't in Jeopardy. If you answer early in Jeopardy, you get fucking shut out. And it's a bummer, a big bummer loop. The 1818 question, I remember, because someone asked it. That was a question in College Bowl. And the answer is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the best-selling novel of 1818. And I don't know this because I know it. I know it because it was a question in fucking. But you pick up things. When you're as old as I am, you guys, it's not as hard to know. It's not as hard to know. It was wonderful seeing everybody in Philadelphia. Um, Emily... Uh, sent us more porpoises and we're going to use those porpoises uh, to uh, the full extent of the law. Um, I have new porpoises that she made for me and I couldn't be more grateful. Um, she really doesn't receive a lot of, uh, of uh, fiscal remuneration or anything like that. Um, but she, uh, 
She is at, uh, let's see what her Twitter handle is here. It's, um, it's at Emily is Bach, which would be, uh, Emily is B A C H for those of you who are down on the Bach tip. I had a wonderful time in Philly. Everyone was really lovely to me. Um, at the Helium Comedy Club. Um, I'm going to be in Oregon at the Portland Helium in October. Uh, and that'll be good fun. Let me see here. Uh, Sullivan's Travels, we're going to show Jennifer and I. Uh, the Greg Proust Film Club continues at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood. 11th next Wednesday, we're showing Sullivan's Travels <clears throat> by Preston Sturges, starring Joel McRae in the immortal Veronica Lake. Preston Sturges appears in the movie like Hitchcock in one scene. He's standing in the back with very wavy hair um, at that point. We showed two other Preston Sturges movies. He might be the director we've showed the most movies by. We've showed um, Sullivan's Travel. We're going to show Sullivan's Travels. And we've showed um, The Lady Eve and uh, Blast. Blast. Palm Beach Story. Palm Beach Story. Oh, my God. You were there for that one. I'm the weenie king. (laughs) Money. I'm cheesy with it. That has the best ending in movie history. They get to the very last two seconds of the movie and everything is solved because there's another set of twins who are a man and a woman who are brothers and sisters with our heroes that we've been following through the whole movie and they get married at the end. Yeah. Um, you're like, if you were a screenwriter, you'd never have the balls to do that. You would just never. Talk about Dewey et Machina. It's absolute hogwash that that's the ending of the movie. And everyone cried laughing and no one says a word about it, which proves or disproves the adage that beginnings and endings are the hardest part and the most important part. As long as it's funny, nothing else fucking matters. I think in comedies, this one is a goodie. He's a uh, uh, crusading. He's a rich director with an ex-wife and a butler who lives in a mansion in Hollywood. And he decides but he doesn't been telling he's made movie what were his movies oh my god the names of the movies are hysterically funny um ha ha hayride and i don't know what the fuck uh they, they give him a bunch of uh, crappy movies um uh, that he's made he's a comedy director like preston sturges which is i think the point of it although preston sturges life uh hey hey in the hayloft so long sarong and ants in your plants of 1939 so those are those credits. They give those in the movie and they're like, and he goes, I want to do something significant. I'm going to make a movie about real people, you know, homeless people in America. And I'm going to call it Brother, Where Art Thou? And that's exactly where the Coen brothers stole the title from for their take on Brother, Where Art Thou? So they made the movie that Preston Sturge's character was fixing to make in the movie. They made the movie of Brother, Where Art Thou? Which is a story of a guy in the depression riding around. And, and he, you know, he, he runs... He, it's in the uh, Dust Bowl and all that jazz. In any case, in the, in the picture, he uh, gets the costume department to make him a homeless person's outfit because <laughs> he's a movie director. And he starts out on the road and then he runs into every manner of stuff. It is the, it is the living end. Um, and Veronica Lake is an absolute living doll. Veronica Lake had a rough life and ended up as a waitress in New York, uh, but was also a really terrific actress. And... Uh, also, we've showed two Veronica Lake movies in the Greg Proof Film Club. We showed I Married a Witch yeah, by um, Rennie Claire from a couple of years ago. We showed it for Halloween. And if you haven't seen I Married a Witch, you remember the TV show Bewitched. If you don't, that's where they stole the premise from. He marries a witch. And she's really a proper witch. She can do magic and stuff like that. And 
she's not particularly nice. Like she, she'll use her power for evil, which makes the movie awesome. But a French person directed it, so there's that leeway. Um, Sullivan's Travels, marvelous. That's on the 11th. On the 16th of May, we'll be back at, with the Greg Proof Film Club at the Egyptian Theater. We haven't uh, settled on a picture yet, but there's several nominees pushed forward, and we'll hear back on that later. I'll be in um, Halifax at the um, Halifax Comedy Festival. The podcast will be on the 26th. That's the 25th through the 28th of April. We'll be back at Bar Lubitsch for free on the 2nd of May. On the 26th uh, of May, we'll be in Brooklyn at the Bell House. Um, that's going to be a super extra special cracker. And then on the um, June 8th through 10th, we'll be in Addison uh, at Texas at the Improv there. The podcast will be on the 10th. And then we'll be at the Punchline in San Francisco on June 25th through the 27th. The podcast will be on the 25th. We're also on the road with the Who's Line guys. And it's uh, an epic, epic tour. We're all over. Um, this will already be out by the time we'll have just come back from Ana Cortez, or as we insist on calling it in our group, Anal Cortez and um, Swinomish. Then we're going to be in Utah, Utah, Idaho, Illinois, Chicago, Indiana, Cincy, Cleveland, Toledo, Grand Rapids, St. Louis, Kansas City, Springfield, Atlanta, Augusta, Raleigh, Charlotte, High Point, Dallas, Calgary, Edmonton, Buffalo, Rochester, Northampton, Mass. Northampton, Mass is awesome. We were there several years ago. And um, there's more witchy poo stores and lesbian troublemaking places than you can possibly imagine in one small town. One, of, We were drinking afterward in a beer bar and one of the women was, we were chatting with one of the locals and she said, what they call women here when they attend uh, the university is lugs. And we were like, what's a lug? And she said, lesbian until graduation. Then you go back home and you marry someone, right? Just fantastic. I remember eating a Subway sandwich in my room and um, there had been witch trials there in the, in the 17th century. And uh, one of the cats in the group, who shall go nameless in this story, was walking around the town. And I was like, don't you love it here? I went to a coffee shop today. I, I, got, I got the local newspaper. I was digging some of the vibes, I said. And he went, and I said, remember, there were witch trials here. And he went, yeah, well, the witches fucking won. <laughs> Yay. Right? So, really, I, I don't know where we're playing in Northampton. Maybe we're at the same place. This will give you an idea because Massachusetts has only two things going for it, right? That one day Tom Brady will retire. And the second thing going for it is um, white people misery. The theater in Northampton is called The Calvin, right? Why not just call it the Cotton Mather or Increase Mather? Increase, his, it was his father, was it? Uh, then we're going to be in um, Ryan's old neck of the woods. Oh, no, you weren't near Newark, were you? Very yeah, I was going to say Newark. I knew you were. We're at the Prudential Hall uh, in Newark. Um, I was molested on stage by women in New Jersey last year. I called. Uh, it was a super me proof moment. It was bad. We got up to do Moving Bodies, me and Jeff. And the the Jersey women, they were, they were behind a few drinks. And... Um, yeah, there was groping. Let me just put it that way. That was groping. I mean, groping. Afterward, I was like, is there anyone I can call about this? And we were doing another bit where we were, we, like, we were doing that bit. And the woman who was manipulating me, if you'll pardon the expression, would go, all right, done. After everything she did, she'd like move my arm and then go, all right, done, done. 
And I'm like, is everything okay here? What's the mental state? Then we're in um, Asbury Park, oh, uh, Westbury, New York, which is a lovely theater. And then Asbury Park, New Jersey. And uh, Jennifer's not going to like this part, but it's going to happen anyway. Rosalina, jump a little higher. Oh, senorita. Right. Uh, I don't even know that many Bruce Springsteen songs. That's why I keep singing the same one over and over again. I think I know like four. Of, there's this one, but it's on Darkness on the Edge of Town in Candy's room. And I always thought, oh, creepy. I didn't, I didn't like that one. I like the ones where he screams and shit because it makes it funner. Uh, then we're in um, Indianapolis, Indiana. What a theater this one is. It's called the Murat. And it has these weird, uh, it's like it's a, 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 there's an Eastern feel to it. And upstairs, there's these weird rooms full of old bric-a-brac and shit that Jeff went up to. And this weird area where you can smoke dope. Uh, out, well, you're not supposed to, but you can. It's Indiana. You never know if the ghost of Mike Pence is going to come down and address and and, and, and attack you. Uh, and, and there's a like wooden... They, they didn't put benches there. They put like a wooden yard, kind of like a dog run. So the comedians and everyone are supposed to kind of go into this dog run. I, I don't ask. And this is something you need to know. There's a metal detector to get in and out of the theater. And I mean the stage door where we're coming in. Every time we go in and out. And after the third time, the guy's like, go on. But you're like, how many performers are bringing firearms into the theater? And then I thought, well, maybe they had Van Morrison. So then we're going to be in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And then in November, Tucson, Arizona. How do I find these states, Greg? Whoslivenyway.com. See what we did? We took the name Who's Line. We changed it to Who's Live. It's me, Joel Murray, or as he's known to the TSA of America, Joel Murray. Uh, Jeff B. Davis, uh, who you won't know from anything because he's obscure. And Ryan Stiles, the funny one. Uh, and so we'll be on the road doing all these dates. All those places I told you. Don't write me and say, how come you're not coming to Alabama? We're coming to Georgia. Drive over. How come you're not coming to fucking wherever? Someone wrote me the other day and went, you're killing me. You're not coming to like central uh, Ohio. We're doing like four dates in Ohio. How much? How I can't go everywhere in Ohio. I can't. We did. We did Akron last year. Isn't that enough for you? We had a good time in Akron. Joel ate a sandwich that was bigger than his head. That's what I remember about Akron. They brought it to the bar and it was like a. You remember the da- Blondie and Dagwood movies? Like the, it was a sandwich this big, a sandwich, and he fucking ate it. He went like that. Was just it was impressive. It was really impressive. Beautiful theater in Akron. Gorgeous 1920s. Uh, there's so many wonderful theaters left in the Midwest and the Southeast that are from the 20s. One particular architect, in a further episode, not this episode, we'll discuss the name of that architect. Um, we had talked about it before. A woman's group in Akron, Jennifer reminded me, helped save uh, the theater in Akron in 1967-ish. They were going to knock it down. These theaters have cycloramas, sconces, uh, uh, angels in the architecture it's just really sensational although the one we just played in Monterey a couple weeks ago we had the best time in Monterey and um, seafood um, <laughs> the theater in Monterey is gorgeous and done in the romance revival style much like the Porpoise of Fruititude so there's uh, vaulted ceilings and sconces and all that Spanish jazz and tiles everywhere and, and murals of conquistadors why are you telling us all this Greg when you walk into a corporate 
shit place that's been purpose built, as they say in England. And it's a comedy club that has things on the wall or it's a, a, a regular it's a theater, but it doesn't have any personality. You remember the places that have um, coves with statuary in them and hanging chandeliers and gigantic murals that were painted by hand that have been there for 85, 90 years. It just makes you feel better as a performer. And I think it makes the audience feel better too. There's a sense of continuity, a sense of history, a sense of that Graham Nash saw Buddy Holly there. Mind you, I saw Bo Diddley in the hall in Burlingame, which had no ceremony about it whatsoever and was a dive of the highest caliber. But it had one great advantage. If you parked in the car park behind the hall in Burlingame, you could sneak in the back door, which was never minded. This was the 70s. So you'd sneak in and we'd go in right into the men's room in case anybody saw. And then we'd fucking fuck off into the bar. Mind you, I'm underage drinking. This is, I was like 19. And... We we snuck in the back and Bo Diddley was playing with Lady Bo, who has passed away and we've done a fantastic, she was just tremendous beyond all measure. And uh, the band pogoed for the last 30 minutes of the show. All of them. The Drummer War Derby. It was one of the greatest rock and roll shows I've ever seen in my life. There might have been 150 people there. 100. It was so dinky. It was called The Hall because in the porpoise here where we're sitting, the walls are, you know, I don't know how far apart. It was that big all the way down. There was no big area. It went like that to the back. I don't even know if there. I'm certain it's not. But what a genius place to see a fucking... Uh, Jennifer always tells me um, seeing Johnny Thunders at the I-Beam mm-hmm. uh, was the greatest rock and roll show. Did he order a pizza? No, no, no. He had to borrow a guitar. He borrowed my friend's guitar. It was Jerry Nolan on drums. Yeah, Jerry Nolan who... came shut it down and he fought with them from the stage it was great it was great I hope you can hear that ladies and gentlemen (laughs) Uh, he fought the cops shut the show down I think is the salient uh, part there and uh, I love borrowing a guitar because you haven't got one with you what happened to your guitar one wonders at a certain point and you're like well I can't um, let's see here. What do we got? Here's one by Johnny Thunders. Play, goddammit. Why won't it play? One, two, three, four. <laughs> Second album, Too Much Too Soon. First album's called New York Dolls. What'll thrill you about Johnny Thunders, if you haven't already thrilled him, is his hair seems to have a life of its own. It's like looking at a primate from Southeast Asia. It's just has more body than you can possibly imagine. It's as high as it can be. Uh, Echo and the Bunny Man and Jesus and Mary Chain even our friend Johnny Cooper Clark don't have hair as grand as Johnny Thunder's hair was really superb. Um, so anyways, uh, uh, when you talk about great shows that you've seen, um, Jennifer Royce is that one. I remember the Bo Diddley one. The Chuck Berry one I liked, but it wasn't as thrilling as the Bo Diddley one because we'd bounced up and down for 
ages. And all, I was watching a video the other night, of course, on the road. And you can go on YouTube. And there's a Bo Diddley video from the early 60s. And the guy comes out and he's like, now, kids, it's time to thrill to Bo Diddley. And he has four women in the group, including a woman on guitar. And they do the first one, which is a, hey, Bo Diddley. And he does this groovy dance. And they all wear like tuxedos with bow ties and shit. And the women are in evening gowns. And the crowd's entirely white. And it is the rockingest goddamn it is rocking. Bo Diddley was not like sexy like Chuck Berry or Little Richard. Chuck, Chuck Berry and Little Richard are good looking. Or, or Elvis or Pat Boone, you know, that kind of thing. He wears glasses and he looks a little studious. And he's not the slimmest rock star that ever lived. But God damn it. The sound is so psychedelic and weird and propulsive. And everything's shaving a shish on two bits, right? When he... When he passed, I remember I was uh, at Largo with, um, what was that wonderful musician's name? David, um, the good-looking louche guitar player guy. And he, uh, we were upstairs and I said, I saw Bo Diddley when I was a teenager. And he goes, I don't know Bo Diddley, but I know this one. I know a boy who's tough but sweet. <coughs> Fucking, and we sang I Got Candy. Um, is the show ever going to start? Look, this show's free. And no one paid to get in here today. And Ryan has to leave soon. So everybody calm the goddamn fuck down. We've gone through all this. There's no ads this week. So at no point is going to break in and go, hey, are you looking to build a website or whatever the fuck happens? Are you looking to hire someone for your business, even though you're a loose, indolent stone person in a blanket fort and don't own a business? I know my product. What group was that? The Saints? There was a punk group from Australia in the late 70s and their song was Know Your Product and they had horns. That was what I remember. Um, here we are at the porpoise. Let's see. That weren't the church. Ah, the, uh, the church. We just saw Marty Wilson Piper about a month ago here at Genghis Cohen in LA. Well, Genghis Cohen's a Chinese restaurant that has a cabaret in the back room. And my joke is always um, Genghis Cohen when you don't care about impressing your date. I don't care if I'm inside you later. I don't care if you like me later. I'm taking you to Genghis Khan. It's nice. The food is okay. Uh, there's a great cabaret in the back room. And uh, Marty's a great guitar player. And this was the big hit. He didn't do this one, by the way. He has tons of other backlog. This is a, a song called uh, Under the Milky Way by the church that you'll remember if you uh, are bent that way. Sometimes when this place gets kind it's kind of a groovy, groovy pop jam. The church's biggest strength was they were all good looking. <laughs> they were, they were all good looking. Under the Milky Way tonight. So we saw Marty there. And his new combo. And it was really groovy. And if you get a chance to see Marty Wilson, he's on the road. His name is Marty Wilson hyphen Piper. And uh, we met him in uh, Stockholm a couple years ago at a record store. And uh, we uh, bought... Um, he, oh, Marty knows everything about music. He, he's, he, his personal record collection, he told us, is 40,000 albums. So we bought an Ornette Coleman album from him at this uh, store in Stockholm when we were doing the Bonden Bar. And you may remember the Swedish episodes 
very, very popular episodes of the Proofcast. There was the one where I played um, Immigrant Song, and then there was the other one where I played the Immigrant Song. And the woman got very drunk and made a narwhal noise and then passed out. And we had to be dragged out of the room uh, by one of our friends. And then I said, give her a half an hour. She'll have a vodka and a cigarette, and she'll be right back in here. This woman was six foot one. Half an hour later, she marched back in, sat down in her fucking seat, and carried on drinking. But I mean, before she passed out, it was... She was making the most abstruse cetacean noises you've ever... I mean, I've been sick before, but usually with me, it's a burbling noise. And then I... With me, it's often I'm talking at the, till the very moment when I'm ill. So I'm lying, of course. But in any case, she... Uh, Marty was at that show. Uh, was sitting with Jennifer at the table. And uh, we went to dinner with him after. And he's a, he's a lovely cat. And he was, he's in very good form. Here's a little Marty's guitar playing. So Marty told us at dinner that he had a cabin, was it? Or a house that he had hired in England that housed his records. (laughs) And he said to us, how did two kids like you get get involved in jazz? Because <laughs> we were like, you don't like jazz? He's like, I love rhythm and blues. I like rock. Every genre, you know. And he was like, I'm just not a big jazz person. I'm like, how do you own 40,000 records and not have one jazz? I'm sure you had a few. There was probably like... Right. So anyways, uh, the show has to start at a certain point. Uh, but the church, the church was really good. Marty's not in the church. He's on his own. And he doesn't play church songs. Did he play some church songs? He's got a giant catalog. Um, Jennifer gave me this. It's from a website called Indie 100. Mike Pence's controversial views on homosexuality have long been a source of contention against the vice president. He's been accused of supporting conversion therapy, the practice of trying to change someone's sexual orientation using therapy or other medical means. We showed hairspray uh, last month at the Great Proof Film Club, and John Waters appears as the conversion therapist in the movie of his own making to try to convert um, young Penny from dating black guys. And he has a, he, he's like, date white boys, date white boys. As you know, conversion therapy, like trickle-down economics, executing drug dealers and building a wall are white people folly ideas that don't work at all and are the stupidest things that ever were, on top of being inconceivably homophobic and racist. As Indiana governor, he signed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Well, the name of the act ought to give you an idea of where that one's coming from. It permitted businesses to refuse gay and lesbian customers uh, uh, to, to serve them. That's religious freedom to these people, to refuse to serve your brothers and sisters. By the way, in the Bible, Jesus never mentions marriage, abortion, or homosexuality. In case you're a Christian and you just kind of want to get up on that. Uh, this is the best part. 
18 year old Aaron Bailey decided to organize Columbus, Indiana's very first LGBT pride festival set in the vice president's hometown. I was on a panel for last year's seniors and they all had really nice projects, but they just seem kind of small, I guess. I was just like, I want to do something really big and make a really big change. After attending a pride festival near her town, she decided she was going to replicate it in her own. Her first challenge, which turned out to be not too much of a challenge, was to get permission from the city to close the roads. She said they were supportive. Well done, Columbus, Indiana. The festival's planned for the April 14th. She insists she isn't organizing the event to spite Mike Pence, but rather to celebrate other LGBT members of the community. Since Mike Pence is from here, she said, it seems like everyone else thinks that Columbus is anti-LGBT, but it's not like that at all. Um, I can't tell you how thrilling that is. And well done, Aaron Bailey. Um... It just proves again that youth has to be heard. Youth has to be minded. And if you are youth and you're sitting out there listening to my old ass, um, get motivated and get out there and do this. And don't let adults tell you what's what. Jennifer and I were sharing a couple of stories today about how different adults in our life and other people's lives tried to put us down when we were teenagers, when we expressed our opinion. And I was always mouthy and Jennifer always uh, smarter than the room. So... Adults in their own terrible way have every insecurity and they meet it out on the young sometimes, which is really a fucking bummer. Anyway, well done, Ms. Bailey. Some punk with a shotgun shot Danny Bailey this morning in the lobby of a downtown. Nobody? Okay. All right. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road, Elton John. She killed him in anger, a force he couldn't handle. Help pull the trigger that cut short his life. And there's not many knew him the way that we did. Show sure, he was a wild one, but on most hungry kids. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No? Now it's all over, Danny Bailey. And the harvest is in. Dillinger's dead. I guess the cops won again. Nobody? All right, fine. You can leave that in. <laughs> Only good news this week, all y'all. Uh, starting with this one. Um, let's see here. No, fuck. All right, you're going to have to. There we go. Uh, liberals just won a seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court by a huge margin. And this is the headline from Vox. Another defeat for Republicans in state elections during the Trump era. Liberal candidate Rebecca Dallet, who we saw interviewed last night on MSNBC, has won election to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. She defeated her conservative opponent, Michael Skrecknock. Michael Skrecknock um, said openly that he supported the National Rifle Association. She went all around the state and campaigned. Uh, if you're confused, let me back up two steps. The Supreme Court in many states, not California, but the state of Wisconsin, is an elected position. And the justices who sit on the Supreme Court are elected for a 10-year term. I know it sounds strange to you, but you've never been to the Midwest and thrown a stick of dynamite in a lake for fun. Or at, what did John Cougar Mellencamp insist that you do? Eat a chili dog at the Tasty Freeze, I believe it was. <laughs> Eating chili dog at the Tasty Freeze. I don't know what the fucking lyrics are to that song. Oh, yeah. Whatever. So that's what the that's what the Midwest is like. Except people are nice. They're fat, but they're nice. And uh, not all of them are fat. I'm not fat shaming. 
I remember it. I told you this before. I was in Indiana years ago and I, I was moved after the third day because I had so many delightful social encounters with people. And I said to a guy at a radio station, everybody, you're so nice. And he turned to me and he went, that's why they call it the heartland, Greg. And I was like, fuck you. The reason we call it the West Coast is because we're high and we don't give a shit. And I'm going to wet you with Mike Jammy. So uh, uh, she, this Skreknock type, Skreknock, whatever the fuck his name was, um, ran on a, a I support guns bill. She went around the state all over to different various towns. And by the way, Wisconsin, like every other state, has hip areas, uh, Milwaukee and Madison being two places where Ma- Milwaukee has um, a black population of significant number. Madison is where sharing, caring white liberals come to um, eat, you know, ethnic foods of different varieties. Near the state house where Scott Walker, one of the worst governors in the United States, uh, is installed. Scott Walker did not want to hold a special election in his state to replace their senator, tried and was shut down by three different courts before he finally folded and three different courts. Um, I was surprised they didn't try to impeach this judge the minute the uh, election was decided. They have the Republican Party uh, all over the United States and particularly in Wisconsin has no truck with anything like rules, rule of law, order, anything like that. It's absolutely um, live and let die. Dallas one is yet another example of liberal voter enthusiasm in state and local elections held during the age of Trump. Wisconsin specifically, it's a rare victory for a Democratic Party that's been beaten again and again. They haven't had a Democratic leaning justice on the court. By the way, the court is supposed to be nonpartisan, but we live in this era. So like every other era, it's not nonpartisan. Um, it, uh, they haven't had a, a, a liberal leaning judge elected in 23 years. It's a huge victory. It's like Roy Moore in Alabama. It's like what happened in Virginia. Um, we're making strides. Don't let old white people, and by old white people, I mean Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, convince you that something else is going on in this country because this is what's going on in this country. Let's move on to more good news. If you haven't heard of her, you should. Her name is Epsi Campbell Barr. Fantastic name. Costa Rica elects its first black female vice president in the Americas. In the Americas. Do you follow me? By the way, Costa Rica had a woman president before, and we'll get to that. Carlos Alvarado won Costa. This is from Newsweek. Carlos Alvarado won Costa Rica's presidential election last Sunday by a large mardigan against evangelical singer Fabricio Alvarado. Yes, both candidates were named Alvarado. No, they are not related. Yes, one was... You think things are wild here. An evangelical singer ran for president in Costa Rica. And his campaign, the evangelical singer, would you like to guess what it was based on? I'm just going to let you, the audience, guess. I'm going to wait for your guess, and then I'm going to tell you. Okay, here's your guess. Here's what he ran on. Anti-same-sex marriage. Okay. Homophobia is so delicious, whether it's served with empanadas, plantains, or uh, uh, hash browns. It really comes with every dazzling variety of homophobia. Equally important was the election of Alvarado's running mate, Epsi Campbell Barr, the first black female vice president in the Americas. She will join the ranks of other trailblazers, such as Victoria Garon, the country's first female vice president from 86 to 90, Thelma Curling, the first Afro-Costa Rican legislator, 82 to 86, and this one's going to excite you beyond measure. The first female president of Costa Rica was Laura Chinchilla from 2010 to 2014. 
It will be a responsibility not only to represent people of African descent, um, she is of African descent, but to represent all women and men in the country, a country that gives us all the same opportunities, Campbell Barr told the website Costa Rica, hoy. It would not, hoy, it would not be the first in Costa Rica, but in Latin America. Eventually, if the president leaves the country, I would be the first woman of African descent to assume the presidency of an entire American continent. It's a big responsibility. Her grandmother was from Jamaica and she was named after her. That's where the Epsi comes from. Uh, it's just awesome. The vice president has published books and articles on economic participation, democracy, sexism, racism, people of African descent, among other topics. She's remained Afri active in the Afro-Caribbean affairs and in 96 founded the Women's Forum of Central American Integration, an initiative she coordinated until 2001. She has two daughters, a master's degree in international cooperation. Um, it's just glorious uh, that there is a um, African uh a woman of African descent as vice president of Costa Rica. Good housekeeping. No, I don't often go to good housekeeping, but I am this week. Why, Greg? Why? 10 women over 50 show what resilience looks like. We really don't get um, a lot of love uh, for women over 50. Um, women over 50 are castigated. Women over 50 are lied about. Women over 50 are scrutinized. Women over 50 are demonized. Women over 50 are turned into witches and um, corporate shills and shrill people who lie and are dishonest. You're Nancy Pelosi. You're Hillary Clinton. You're, you're Maxine Waters. Maxine Waters, I believe, uh, Orange 45 called um, a low IQ individual. Um, that's straight racism. Uh, they face huge challenges. They are the perfect age to meet the world with new strength and boldness. If you want to go, it's at goodhousekeeping.com. Um, Amy Cohen is the founder of Families for Face Safe Streets. Uh, it's about, it's a traffic accident association. Um, Kim Vanderwater is the founder of Pet Rover. She does pro bono rescue pets after she had cancer. Erica Landis is a writer and her son drowned and uh, she's carried on writing. Uh, Lisa Andahar is an associate director and a car accident survivor. Uh, the, Leah Rhodes is the founder of Glass Baby, which donates a portion of each of their sales to handle glass items to help people, animals, and the planet. Um, Melissa Barbieri is an artist who paints large-scale figurative works of art. Um, it's really uh, impressive and it's really magnificent. Um, to read about all these different women because you're not going to hear about them in the news. As I've so often said, the lead story in the news isn't that women are being kidnapped and, and disappeared and sold into slavery. That's never the lead story, even though it should be the lead story. That women are forced to live in poverty and on the streets. That women who are taking care of children are forced to live in poverty on the streets. That were terrible to women and children uh, in the United States. Um, no, the story is um, Orange 45 uh, lied again about the wall or Orange 45 said there was millions and millions of fake voters or orange 45 and you mustn't listen to what he says because he only lies he's a pathological narcissistic um liar uh so it's it's nice to hear about some women so let's hear about winnie mandela winnie mandela is controversial why is she controversial because she's black and she's a woman and she fought for what she wanted um did she do questionable things I'm going to put a bunch of men forward right now and you tell me whether they did questionable things. All right, I didn't even do it. You already filled in the blanks on who I'm talking about here. Afua Hirsch is a writer working in London and she wrote this piece for The Guardian. I'm only going to read you a couple uh, sentences. Winnie Mandela was married to Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela 
even though he was a terrorist, Nelson Mandela, who used violent means and absolutely uh, brought the government his angriest mean uh, to help what eventually he spent 29 years in captivity for and received the Nobel Prize because uh, he shared it with a white man who had been a proponent of apartheid. If you don't know what apartheid is, it's the separation of blacks and whites. We called it segregation. They called it apartheid. And the absolute distinction between the races. This is what she has written about Winnie Mandela. Sadly, I suspect much of the newly discovered outrage sparked by the Madikazela Mandela's death has little to do with any of the recent conversion to the cause of Black Lives Matter or accompanying grief for the fate of little Stompy, one of so many black children who lost their lives during the brutality of apartheid. What it's really about is a reluctance to admit that apartheid was so wrong and so entrenched and without the resilience and vision of Mandela and those of her ilk, it would not have been brought down. And this is the point that I thought was unbelievably salient and that I really can't emphasize enough to you. If you're out there bumming out that I'm giving Winnie Mandela love, I want you to listen to this part. Britain's heroes are allowed to have waged war. The warriors against white supremacist oppression, on the other hand, are not. When, for example, I questioned Piers Morgan, I can't believe I said the words on this show, but she's a journalist and she has to talk to him, over the appropriateness of having a 50-meter column in Trafalgar Square to commemorate Admiral Nelson, he spat that Nelson Mandela has a statue despite being a terrorist. When I debated with a renowned naval historian over his adulation of the Admiral, the argument wound its way to Haiti, the only example in history of slaves successfully overthrowing their masters and establishing their own republic, and whether this was a victory for the enslaved over their oppressors, my view, or a tragedy for the plantation owners who were killed in the process, his view. So there's two white people who are defending Admiral Nelson for his various depredations. Admiral Nelson had no I, half of an arm and part of a leg. He waged war. Lord Haig, who is a hero who has a statue in Westminster, would not believe that the German Sten guns were going to wipe out the troops if they came out of the trenches. And he sent tens of thousands of English people to their death. He has a statue. Winnie Mandela had to do what she had to do. Are you justifying violence? Greg, you always say that violence isn't justified. No, I'm trying to get you to look at it from a point of view from an African person in a white world. And that's Britain. It took women like Winnie Mandela. She was, as the world's media have had to be repeatedly reminded, not an activist. She was a leader in a liberation struggle. 35 years of apartheid, surveillance threats, harassment, arrest, imprisonment, 491 days in solitary confinement, and eight years in exile. The methods of torture used against her included denying her sanitary products. She was found in detention covered in her own blood. I doubt the Daily Mail was, uh, would, would recall her blood-soaked appreciated the irony of this choice of phrase, nor that of judging her rather than the apartheid regime she helped overthrow. Our ambivalence about apartheid is the elephant in the room. Why am I reading this to you? Because it was important in South Africa, it's important in Britain, and it's important here. We had Martin Luther King's birthday to this week, and I'm getting to that in just a moment. Um, Orange 45 is president. He is stand-up, straight-up racist. Nazis are very fine people. The Tennessee legislature this week refused in two different bills put before them to, uh, to, uh, to uh, in any way, diminish Nazis. 
uh, our uh, attorney general, the head of the Justice Department, is an avowed hater of voting rights and was, I assure you, quite glad on the day Martin Luther King was assassinated. Know this about Martin Luther King. There was polls taken before he died and he was almost overwhelmingly hated by white people before he died. His rehabilitation into a national hero is absolutely in retrospect. And I'll go one, two steps even further. The FBI was involved in the COINTEL program of chasing him and Malcolm X down. They're involved in their assassinations and that guns were used. The NRA has had the nerve this week to say that Martin Luther King wanted to carry a gun for his own protection and would have been alive if he had a gun on him. Guns are what killed him. And the NRA is part of that white, racist, apartheid, uh, arms-bearing movement that carries on in this country that is the sickness that is at the core of us. As I said before, white supremacy is a scourge in this country. And the uh, allowing white people to carry guns willy-nilly and wantonly, not a well-regulated militia, but guys who shoot out uh, convenience stores, as that happened yesterday, guys who shoot at cops and don't get shot by the cops, um, it happens all the bloody time. Our ambivalence about apartheid is the elephant in the room. As a nation, one of our techniques for glossing over this uncomfortable fact is that beatifying Nelson Mandela, whose posthumous glory has struck me as a coming of the cost of forgetting the others. Who now remembers the names? Robert Subukwi, the profound pan-Africanist whose medical treatment for fatal lung cancers was obstructed by the apartheid government. Elias Motsoeldi, convicted at Rivonia alongside Mandela and not released from Robben Island until 26 years, years later. We consider Mandela to be safe because of his message of forgiveness, because of truth and reconciliation, because he accepted the Nobel Prize with apartheid regime president F.W. de Klerk, decisions to which Winnie Mandela was fundamentally opposed. She was a radical until the end. Each rejection of that radicalism is an endorsement of the tyranny she fought against. But is it surprising we endorse it? An endless litany of British heroes were either architects or happy to take part in the apartheid Winnie Mandela sacrificed so much to help end. Among them, those at the center of our current statue wards, Cecil Rhodes of Rhodesia, Lord Kitchener, Lord Kitchener who was all over Africa, and is wildly famous uh, for his work in the genocide against Indians and Egyptians. Um, Jan, Jan Smoots, all of them immortalized in prominent plinths. A plinth is what holds a statue up. It's hard to resist the conclusion comparing the fact that it's these men we immortalize and those such as Winnie Mandela who we demonize and that we are undecided about which side of history we as a nation are on. That's Britain. By the way, in Britain this week, it was discovered that members of the Labour Party, high up in the party, were wildly anti-Semitic and that Jeremy Corbyn has never really come clean about his anti-Semitism. And I know I've talked about this before on the show, but I'm going to bring it up one last time. I'm not. It's going to keep, keep, keep getting brought up, but I'm going to bring it up again right now. It's the only place I've ever been and the only place Jennifer and I've ever lived where they'll say in the paper, Jewish um, TV uh, uh, presenter Vanessa Feltz, Jewish um, TV presenter um, Nigella Lawson. They actually call people Jews in the paper. Mm -hmm. And that is some shocking shit. So to find out that the Labour Party is rife with anti-Semitism is both at once disappointing and terrifying because they were supposed to be the good guys. It's the Tories, the ones who are up to their ass in Cambridge Analytica, the ones who are facing the same issues we have, which is Russia uh, was involved in the Brexit vote, did the same kind of meddling 
uh, or l- let's not call it meddling. That's too um, light of a word. The same kind of absolute direct tampering and um, trying to destroy uh, Britain's uh, ability to vote coherently and legally um, that we are. The Brexit vote was um, absolutely jiggered with. Our vote was jiggered with. We know this now. I'm not saying anything out of turn. I'm not wearing a tinfoil hat. I don't live in a van. Uh, I don't uh, think that the FBI is reading my mind with x-rays. Yes, I think James Comey is uh, not as admirable a person as I wished he was. But history will bear me out. Uh, Here's another beautiful person. Uh, let's go to this person here. Uh, Jennifer sent me this article. Johan von Hulst, Dutch school teacher who saved hundreds of Jewish children during the Holocaust, died. I, I don't usually use the word die. I always say swirly in the heavens. He was 107. I don't know how you live that long. Yeah. That means I get to live 49 more years, another lifetime. An inspector from the Dutch education ministry, this is the Washington Post, and by the way, as a side note, since we're on Jews, Ellie Silverman, excuse me, Ellie Silverman wrote this article. And by the way, my uh, uh, colleague, Dave Badil, who's a comedian in England, and you uh, may remember him if you're a fan of Badil and Newman. Of course, you'll remember him on his own on the football show with Frank Skinner and Dave Badil's written several novels, um, came out this week and talked about anti-Semitism in the papers. And uh, he's been taking a, a lot of stick for it. Um, on his Twitter page, his handle says Dave Badil. Mine says, you know, troublemaker, anti-choice or whatever, or pro-choice or uh, his says Jew. That's how significant it is in England to announce who you are. An inspector from the Dutch education ministry arrived at Johan van Holst's t- uh, teacher training institute in Amsterdam on the morning of June 19, 1943. He noticed youngsters and with SS soldiers standing nearby asked, are those Jewish children? You don't really expect me to answer that, do you? Dr. Van Holst replied. The garden of Dr. Van Holst's Reformed Teachers Training College bordered the garden of a Jewish nursery. Under Dr. Van Holst's supervision, hundreds of Jewish infants and children had been passed across the hedge and hidden in his school. He recalled the inspector shook his hand and quietly said, in God's name, be careful. There's a beautiful moment. Dr. Van Holst was credited with saving more than 600 Jewish babies and children during World War II, and in 1972 was named Righteous Among the Nations by the Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial Center in Jerusalem. The Dutch Senate, where he later served, um, did not give a cause of his passing away. He was recognized among more than 26,500 Gentiles, 5,595 from the Netherlands, recognized for risking their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. See how many nice people they were? By the way, 6 million Jews, 25,000 Gentiles helped. Let's do a little subtraction here. Um, What are you getting at, Greg? I'm getting at this. When ICE agents are deporting people who've lived in this country for 20 years, when Nazis are very fine people, when the Russians are interfering with our elections, when Jeff Sessions won't do anything to help, when Betsy DeVos won't um, uh, let, uh, keeps... um, diminishing rules that are set in place for education to be more equal between the races. That's racism. And you have to say something. You have to do something. What can I do? At the very least, register and vote. And don't vote for a Republican. But I like, I'm a a super lefty progressive. Hooray for fucking you. Vote for someone who can win. 
and let's take this thing back over again. Um, racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia are on the real, you guys. This isn't something we're imagining right now. It's as bad as you can possibly imagine. Families are being broken up. Lives are being destroyed. What does it take for you to understand that? I just read you that Mike Pence had the Religious Reformation Freedom Act or whatever that allows people to go. I'm not making a cake for you for your gay wedding because I hate queers. And somehow that's freedom. So Germany invaded the Netherlands in May 1940. And by the summer of 42, the police had already started helping round up the Jews. My goodness. During the next two years, 100,000 and 107,000 Jews were sent to the death camps. 5,200 survived. Let's just go over that number one more time. And no, less than 25% of the Dutch Jewish population survived the Holocaust. His school was diagonally opposite a theater that was being used by the Nazis as a way station for Jews into Westerbrook transit camp. From there, they were moved to um, Poland. At the theater, children under 12 were separated from their parents and sent to a nursery across the street. When there were too many children for the facility, authorities asked Dr. Van Holst if they could use the spare room in the teacher's academy. Dr. Van Hulst set up an ingenious system along with Walter Suskind, a German-born Jew, and, and Henriette Pemintel, who ran the nursery. Suskind had fled Germany after Hitler's rise and established himself in Amsterdam. Throughout his involvement with the local Jewish council, he was uh, one of the many municipal administrations the Germans formed to carry out Nazi orders. He was charged with running the theater and registering the local Jews. He made hundreds of children vanish from the administrative records after they'd been separated, and they kept them at the nursery. If Pemintel transferred 30 children to the school, they only wrote down 25 names. That's how they did it, and that's how they hid them. Um, they're all beautiful people, and... Uh, it's so awesome that he lived to be 107 years old. It's more awesome than you could possibly imagine. We were talking about uh, Dr. King this week. The Root had a couple of very good articles. Um, Martin Luther King was assassinated this week, um, 50 years ago. And it was because our government couldn't handle him. The white supremacists in the country couldn't handle him. And what was fierce resistance on his part has been homogenized by history and white people to this nonviolent, uh, passive uh, uh, resistance, which it wasn't at all. He was beaten. He was jailed. Everyone who went with him was beaten and jailed. I read you from the Dick Gregory book where he was on a march with him, where Dick Gregory, the comedian, who was swirling in the heavens, was beaten and jailed. They did not lay on the ground and act like nothing was happening. They took it to the government and demanded their rights because rights are never given. No, there's no concessions uh, by white people. White people never concede anything. You've got to demand and, uh, uh, and state your case. Uh, this is from The Root, from a piece written by uh, Michael Harriot. When Atlanta's white businessmen gathered to celebrate King's 1964 Nobel Peace Prize, he stood at the podium and told them, history will have to record that the greatest tragedy of this period of social transition was not the strident clamor of the bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people. Uh, let's see here. Uh, there's a page on the, uh, the Atlantic magazine, uh, which just fired one of the great uh, sexists of the week. The Atlantic.com Project Stroke King 
If you go to the Atlantic magazine, there are nothing but articles about Martin Luther King's legacy. And I mean, page after page of them. It's very good reading. You should read up on him. You should know something about history. Moving backwards a moment after the shithole comment in uh, January, Lindsey Graham, Dick Durbin, Bob Goodlatte and Tom Totten, Stephen Miller, government staffers and other officials were in the room when uh, Orange 45 said Haiti was a shithole country. They did not challenge him. None of the lawmakers who represent Haitians and Nigerians walked out of the room. Despite the fact there's no evidence these men encouraged Trump, they remained silent. They knew. This is what Michael Harriet says, and I agree with him. This is from The Root. These men are white supremacists. Every headline you will read about Trump's comments will place the blame solely on him and adeptly leap over the obvious fact he felt comfortable enough in the company of this gaggle of old white men to disparage the residents of an entire country with his racist tangent. This, that's how white supremacy works. It has nothing to do with the ethereal concept of normalizing racism. This is a brick and mortar example of how men nonchalantly spread the evil form of oppression that has plagued this country for centuries and then lackadaisically go about their business as if nothing happened. Martin Luther King said this, and then Michael Harriet said this, because for them, nothing happened in italics. Nothing happened. He called Haiti a shithole. He called Africa a shithole. These are white men sitting in a room with him. They're like, he's Trump, right? That's white supremacy. And it's, as as he calls it, brick and mortar white supremacy. It's not a concept. Martin Luther King said this, he who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps perpetrate it. He who accepts evil without protesting against it, it is really cooperating with it. I couldn't agree more. You've got to stand up, you guys. And the time is now. There's not another time. You don't get another chance at this. We're not certain that anything good is going to happen. Um, I believe it will, because I believe that uh, we outnumber everyone. And I think that uh, with Ms. Wallet being elected to the Supreme Court in Wisconsin, and what's been going on with what we're calling the blue wave, uh, let me read you this that Jennifer sent me. This is from AP News, a noted troublemaking lesbian, baby-killing source of news, the Associated Press. The number of women running for the U.S. House sets record The number of women running for seats in the U.S. House of Representatives set a record last Thursday. The vast majority of them Democrats motivated by angst over President Donald Trump and policies of the Republican-controlled Congress. Their ranks will continue to grow in the weeks ahead, with filing deadlines still to come in more than half the states. In many places, women are running for congressional seats that have never had a female representative. It's about time, said Kara Eastman of Nebraska, one of two Democrats vying to challenge a Republican incumbent in a district centered in Omaha. After Virginia released its candidate list Thursday, a total of 309 women from two major parties have filed candidacy. That tops the previous record of 298. AP analyzed data going back to 1992. Over half the nation's population of female Four out of five members of the House are men. Over half the nation's population is female. Four out of five members. I'll do the math for you there. That's 80% are men. She should run.org. She should run. If you're thinking about running, running. If you're thinking you're not qualified, <laughs> we have Dana Rohrbacher in our state. We have Devin Nunez in our state. We have people 
as my father would say, couldn't find their ass with a road map. So uh, really get it up and get it in. There are Republicans running as well, and I encourage them to run as well. Any women that are running are an improvement over who is there, particularly the men I just mentioned, Goodlotty, Graham, those types in the Senate. They're do-nothing, sit on their hands, twiddle their thumbs, uh, do nothing for anyone in society. They, they're not going to make a difference. I'll warn you one more time. I am an old white man. Old white men have nothing good in mind for you. Be afraid of them. Get rid of them. Move them out. Here's an old white man you'll like, like Dr. Van Holst. Uh, Judge Stephen Reinhardt is swirling in the heavens. Uh, he was the chief justice of the Warren Court in exile, his clerk described him. He would be remembered for having an arcane and impenetrable uh, uh, procedural rules that elevated process over substantive rights, especially those of racial minorities. And that's why he is a beautiful person. One can only contemplate with dread the answer the current court would have given had it been asked to overrule Plessy versus Ferguson. That's a famous racial case. Judge Reinhardt was one of the hardest working judges on the federal bench. Not like anyone Orange 45 is nominating now. He's nominating, as Rick Wilson would so brilliantly call them, slow coaches, which I love that expression. He uh, a heavy load of bench memos and draft opinions, a nonstop blizzard of email correspondence with other judges on the Ninth Circuit. Because the judge lived 87 years without once touching a keyboard, there was a never-ending stream of law clerks going in and out of his chambers, dropping off drafts, and leaving with bruised egos and marked-up manuscripts. We sometimes joke that clerking for Judge Reinhardt was the price one paid for the lifelong privilege of being his former clerk. The truth is we were in awe of his brilliance, his drive, and his commitment to using the law to protect the powerless. When was the last time you heard about a white man doing that? It's beautiful. He's best known for his opinions and landmark cases involving marriage equality, reproductive freedom, the separation of church and state, and the right to determine the time and manner of one's own death. Let's just have a look at the reproductive freedom case. This is on the ACLU website, by the way. Um, Planned Parenthood Federation of America Incorporated versus... Alberto Gonzalez, Attorney General of the United States, in his official capacity, you may remember Alberto Gonzalez, he was W's Attorney General, he was known as Fredo, the stupid one of the Godfather clan, and he was the one who, when testifying in front of the Congress, said, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 76 times. Um, he was one of the least qualified jurists to ever be Attorney General, until now! Uh, death penalty cases show Judge Reinhardt at his finest. He made no secret of his personal abhorrence about being part of a system that extinguished human life. For those of you who support the death penalty, I don't know how to explain it to you. There's no redress of grievance. That's my first argument. Two, uh, don't come at me with, what if I killed your mother in front of you and then shouldn't I die for that? That's a really weird argument. Stop with that. Thirdly, Iran, China, and Russia are the countries, that, and Saudi Arabia are the countries that execute people. You don't want to be in their neighborhood. They're draconian. It's medieval. It's disgusting. It's awful. The fact that Judge Reinhardt didn't want to be part of a system where the state murders people, police murdering people is the state murdering people. The criminal court system, um, uh, giving sentences to people, a death sentence to someone, is the state being uh, given the right to murder you. But, well, but what if some of them are bad guys? Some of them are bad guys. Some of them are bad whatever. That's not how the system works. 
Many of them are innocent. Now we found over the years, as blood tests have come out and different uh, means of uh, identifying people's innocence, that all everyone who's accused of uh, uh, sentenced to the death penalty didn't deserve it. When a rich white guy like Mr. Durst, for example, just picking him out of the air, is sentenced to death and is executed, then you can come back to me and start to talk to me about justice. Until then, you can put a giant sock in your mouth. Don't you want us to have an exchange about this? Not really, no. It's like racism to me. Racism is not a political position. Homophobia is not a political position. You're just an awful person who believes awful things. We can disagree over whether you should be taxed or whether guns should be uh, 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 more heavily monitored by the government. That's something we might be able to argue. When you come at me with, um, I don't want queers to get married, then you're just a bad person and I don't really want to entertain your opinion anymore. Anytime an execution was scheduled in any of the states of the Ninth Circuit, the judge and his clerks would stay in chambers till the final moments in case there was a last-minute appeal. He invariably dissented, sometimes alone, when the court failed to halt an execution. When he acknowledged being bound by the Supreme Court precedents upholding the constitutionality of the death penalty, he once told me that he had, quote, yet to see a death penalty case without reversible error. This was a judge who you just heard worked harder than anyone, stayed up all night and never used a computer, which means he poured over files. Antonin Scalia would disagree with him. Uh, just, Chief Justice uh, uh, Roberts would disagree with him. Justice Gorsuch would disagree with him. Justice uh, Scalito would disagree with him. Justice uh, Thomas would disagree with him. Um, I agree with him. Um, you're not a justice. What do you know about law? I know this. Uh, as Peter Cook said, there are many good laws for the rich, not so many for the poor. Um, we're not going to go into Facebook and Cambridge Analytica because I haven't time this week, but I will point you toward an article that you can read. First of all, in my opinion, uh, Mark Zuckerberg should have resigned. Uh, and apologized and be paying punitive fines. The fact that he's still allowed to run around is the embodiment and epitome of white privilege. Cheryl, as well, Miss Lean In. There is an article in The Atlantic. It's not from this week. It's from a, a month or two ago. And it's called The Cambridge Analytica Scandal in Three Paragraphs. I'll read you the last paragraph. Cambridge Analytica has significant ties to some of President Trump's most prominent supporters and advisors. Rebecca Mercer, a Republican donor and co-owner of Breitbart News, sits on the board of Cambridge Analytica. Her father, Robert Mercer, invested $15 million in Cambridge Analytica on the recommendation of his political advisor, Steve Bannon. On Monday, uh, well, we already saw that, Alexander Nixon, the hidden camera footage, he's already resigned. Cambridge Analytica's uh, CEO was offered to bribe and blackmail public officials around the world. Cambridge Analytica used its psychographic tools to make targeted online ad buys for the Brexit Leave campaign, the 2016 presidential campaign of, 20, of Ted Cruz, and the 2016 Trump campaign. Well, I think that's fairly clear. I don't know how much clearer I can make it. Uh, and, and so we're there. Uh, on the other hand, look at all the women who were running for office. Look at all the women who are winning office. Look at all the trans people who are winning office. Look at what all the teenagers are doing um, to make gun control a reality in this country. Things are moving forward. Uh, don't pay attention to the lies uh, about uh, millions and millions of people voted falsely. The actual figure for um, um, uh, people who voted uh, that voted without ID or that tried to misrepresent themselves is 31 people out of 
hundreds and hundreds of million people who voted. Um, there's no truth to it at all. He's going to keep yelling the same things over and over again because there's a gigantic noise machine. It's run by white people for white people by white people. Uh, I urge you uh, to uh, rise up. It was Maya Angelou's birthday yesterday as well. And uh, Maya Angelou um, said, still I rise. And that, that's how we play it here. Uh, you've been the smartest crowd in the world. I've been the smartest man in the world. Uh, may every page you turn be a satchel page. May every uh, bell that rings for you be a cool public bell. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're carried. Make sure you're